Hello and welcome to the Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I discuss all issues to do with where technology meets public policy. And sometimes I go abroad virtually like uh, France or Holland or Israel or Estonia to find out what they're doing. Sometimes I talk to policymakers like Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Sometimes I take a deep dive into a specific sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And today I am completely overexcited for many different reasons. The first is that this is the first podcast I've done since I started The Vase of You in person. I'm physically in a room with my guest. Secondly, the subject of this podcast combines not just one great love, but two great loves, my love of technology, but also my love of culture. So I'm here in the natural history museum. And obviously, with this podcast, I never do my research, but built sometime in the mid 19th century. And I'm here with the relatively new director of the Natural History Museum, Doug Gurr. Doug, welcome. Ed, thank you. It's terrific to have you in the museum and particularly terrific to have you museum on the first day we've been open for some time. I should have said this is the first opening of the museum since museums were allowed to open after the easing of lockdown. So May the 17th, I've no idea when this will go up. But this is the a day that will live in history, as it were. Now, Dugger is a very interesting chap who's sort of run parallel careers uh, all his life. So he's been chairman of a national museum before, the Science Museum. He's run a supermarket, Asda, physical as it were, and he's run an online retailer, Amazon, in the UK. And he's now given up the world of retail, as it were, and come full-time to be director of the Natural History Museum. Tell us a bit about yourself, Doug. Tell us about this interesting career where you've chopped and changed between culture in its widest sense and commerce. Well, thanks, Ed. And as you say, it's, a, it's perhaps a slightly unusual path, but I've, um, I've always been passionate about culture. Uh, I've had day jobs, if you like, in the commercial world and very much in the consumer tech world. So initially, as you say, serving customers in supermarkets, most of the last 10 years working for Amazon, a little bit in the UK, where I was effectively number two. I then had a fantastic time for three years running Amazon's businesses in China. Uh, then I came back and spent about the last five years running our businesses here in the UK. A long time parallel with that, I'd always obviously had a passionate interest in culture and museums. As you say, I had the opportunity to be a trustee and then chair of the Science Museum. I also had a wonderful spell as a trustee at the National Gallery, where you know the team there very well. Uh, and you and I crossed paths, I think, when you were culture minister for that period back in the day. So that's always been a passion. Uh, and really, it was getting to that point of saying, you know, I'd done about five years in the, the Amazon UK lead job and thinking, what next? And I got this slightly random call saying, you know, Natural History Museum's looking for a new director. And I just thought, wow, why not? Who wouldn't want to come and... Uh, join one of these truly great institutions and uh, get the opportunity to spend time here. So that's me today. So the reason I'm very excited, I mean, it's a sort of, uh, you could argue, sort of slightly controversial in some sense, because you're not what one would call a typical museum director, even though you have obviously this very strong background in culture. But in my view, you're exactly, uh, with the greatest respect to all the other museum directors in the country, you're exactly what the museum world to a certain extent needs. Somebody who's come from the world of commerce and serving customers, particularly 
in a digital age? And it sounds like a facetious question, but it's meant to tease out a serious answer in terms of the similarity between running a supermarket, running a, an online retailer and running a museum. <laughs> well, I think it, it really comes down to, to two things, Ed. First, first, as you rightly said, whether you're running a something as if I can use the phrase as mundane as a supermarket or as, as wonderful and glorious as a, a great national museum, you're really here to serve customers, whether we call them visitors or, in our case, also researchers around the world. But I think the very best organizations like that do have this incredibly strong theme of starting with, you know, what is it the customer? How can we create the right experiences? That's very much the way I think leading sort of commercial, customer-focused organizations work. And I think it's very much how the best museums have always worked. So I think that's, if you like, one common thread. Uh, I think the other thing which is a common thread across all of those organizations is, uh, as you talked about, your second passion, which is technology. Uh, I'm sure uh, when we come to write the history of the, the early 21st century, uh, I'm pretty sure we'll look back and say that data and informatics has probably had at least as great a transformative uh, impact as any of the previous waves of the Industrial Revolution. And that's something that affects every organization, and it particularly affects, I think, our great cultural organizations, because it, uh, it radically changes how you can communicate with your audiences. And so I think those are two common threads. It's, it's audience-led, it's visitor-led, and also it's about how do we actually adapt to this extraordinary change that's happening across the world. So this is why I'm so thrilled to be physically in the building with you, because obviously I walked along miles of corridors <laughs> to reach your, your office through this absolutely glorious building. And just stepping inside the building itself is, is an experience. Even if you didn't see a single exhibit, you would still marvel at the experience. But the key point and where I want to start drilling down is, is this, that if I had a time machine and transported... Um, somebody from the 1870s into the Natural History Museum, they would broadly speaking be familiar with what they were seeing. And yet here are you and I with smartphones in our pockets able to access the world's information on a supercomputer. When you've discussed your ideas before, you, you, you came up, I, it's not the exact phrase, but it's one that resonated with me, which is museums were the content platform of the 19th century. And that's exactly the point that in the 19th century, you didn't have any of this technology. So you built a big building and you stuffed everything in there for people to look at. It's a cliche to say the pandemic has accelerated digital transformation, but you were just touching on the subject there, which is the pandemic and technology has shown us that you can actually reach an audience of tens, if not hundreds of millions around the world with technology. So how does that change how you think about a museum? So I think it's a, it's a great question. And, and in a sense, I think the, the essence of a museum is not going to change. Museums have always been defined by their collections, these extraordinary collections we have the privilege to look after. But we know that collections in and of themselves are, are just, they're not sterile. There's a beauty in objects. But we know that collections become so much richer and more powerful when we can wrap stories around those collections. And that's what great museum curators have already always done. They've taken a series of objects, they've put them together in a permanent gallery or an exhibition, and they've told a story. But the challenge has been if you only have the physical space, that's constrained. If your primary means of communication is that little white card with 30 words on it, you sort of have to choose one story. What is the one story I'm going to tell here? Is it the historical story, the provenance story, the, you know, the scientific story, the social story, the economic story? All of these are relevant stories, but you sort of had to make a single choice. And that's great, but it's quite constraining because we know that audiences are individual and different stories will engage different individuals. 
And you can take that same object, that one single object from our collection, and I can wrap so many stories around it. And that story, you know, the story that's going to appeal to a 12-year-old child in San Paolo might be very different from the story that's going to appear to the world's greatest scientific expert sitting down the road in Imperial College or somewhere like that. And when you have digital, you can just take away those constraints. You can tell so many more stories. You can begin to personalize those stories. You can begin to help every single individual audience member navigate their own personal journey through the collection. So that's one huge power. The other obvious huge power is, um, and this is very analogous to what I used to find in the good old-fashioned world of you know, retail and shopping, that if you have only the physical building, that's quite constraining. And you can only show what you can show in that physical building. It's particularly extreme here at the Natural History Museum because the collection is so vast. I mean, those of you who know the museum, it's, it's a huge building. It's huge, as you say, miles of corridors. It looks enormous. But actually, if you think about that, there are only 27,000 objects on display. That is 27,000 out of a total collection of nearly 80 million. Or to put it another way, for every single object on display, I have another 3,000 behind the scenes. And now suddenly that constraint is gone. I can open up the entire collection and I can open it up. And for every single object in that collection or every collection of objects, I can tell so many stories and I can make those personalizing. If you do that well, you massively multiply your ability to improve your ability to engage. And if you do it really well, that means that on those occasions when a visitor comes to the physical museum, and nothing I think will ever pre- replace the magic of standing in front of those collections, of, of looking at an object that Darwin brought back on the Beagle, or standing underneath Hope the Blue Whale, or looking at a dinosaur, or a meteorite that's four and a half billion years old, or older than the Earth. That's magical. But think how much more magical it is if by the time you arrive, you have context, you know what you want to see, you're excited. And think how much more magical it is if between times of those physical visits, you stay engaged. And you stay engaged at a level which is built around what you personally want to engage with. So that's just some of the things you can do if you really get serious about, you know, really bringing digital technology to the fore. It's just such a multiplier of what's always been an extraordinary ability of museums to power, to communicate. So I was very intrigued by what you said earlier about uh, the World War transformed radio into what we now listen to with regular news bulletins and that the boom after the war, Second World War transformed television in terms of making it more commercial. It's interesting that museums never, there's no museum radio station and there's no museum television station. And this third great communications revolution, it kind of highlights the fact that it is fundamentally kind of democratic, that you can actually get in the game as a museum in a way you couldn't get in the game perhaps as a television station or as a radio station. But there are still formidable obstacles to overcome. You said you had 80 million objects. How do you go about digitizing <laughs> 80 million objects? Yeah, it's a great question, Ed. And as you say, it's a, it is classically, as we used to say back in my Amazon day, it's a scaling problem. And it's a scaling problem. I want you to use as much Amazon language as possible, by the way, because I really want to I really want to crystallize this point, this opportunity for museums to learn some of the lessons of these amazing businesses. So let let me express it, if you like, in in, um, for want of a better word, data terms. Yeah. Uh, And data terms is really starts with what is the data? What are the data sets? And fundamentally, I think for a museum, it's three things. It's about your visitors. It's about your collection. And it's about your stories. 
And if we take each of those in turn to give you a feel of the scale of the, the challenge, if you like, the scaling problem, in a normal year, I mean, we've just been through COVID, it's been quite difficult, but up until then, we were welcoming north of 5 million visitors every single year. That means in the last 20 years, we've had over 100 million people walk through you know, these corridors, these wonderful corridors. And yet we have on our database a million. So that's only one in 100 we can actually talk to, communicate and engage with. So you have to start with saying, how do we actually begin to know who our visitors are, how we continue to communicate them? And whilst there have been many terrible things about the pandemic, I think one of the things that's really given us a bit of a, uh, an impetus to do is to say, actually now, partly for safety reasons, we ask everybody to register before they visit. It's still free. It's always going to be free. But now we know who's visiting. So we have a chance of communicating. That's scale problem one. You've just got to be able to recognize your visitors otherwise you can't engage is that going to carry on when you no longer Ab- need absolutely to? yes because i think we will see such advantage i know there's going to be a debate about it not everybody's in the same place but from our point of view we'd be crazy not to and our visitors are very welcoming you know it's it's and also we think we can improve the experience because we can we can tell you when it's busy you can book to come when it's quieter we can manage the queuing we can actually create a much better visitor experience and have an opportunity to communicate. And of course, we'll need consent, but on the whole, people are very happy to be engaged if we provide them with relevant content. So that's, if you like, scale problem one. You have to start with a, yeah. what is this, this, for want of a better word, slightly old-fashioned word, the database, the data set, so we know who the visitors are. The second piece, and again, we're a museum, it's a collection. The team here have been quietly digitizing our collection for probably 10 years now. And they've done a tremendous job. They've done the really hard bit, which is working out, again, without getting too geeky, the metadata, the structure, the taxonomy. How do we know what all the characteristics of each object are, which isn't just the image, it's the provenance, who collected it, when, where, all of these things. These things we need to know. So that's great. The challenge is it's just a lot to get through. And after 10 years, we've done nearly 5 million objects, which is fantastic. But it's 6% of the collection. So we've got an awful long way to go. And that's going to take real acceleration, some of which is just throwing more resource about it. But some of it's also using the very latest and greatest techniques. We've not yet really even scratched the surface of what can proper AI machine learning do in terms of drawing attributes automatically from collections. So there's a big piece of work there to really make sure you get that collection properly digitized. And that's a must do. And then the third piece, which is probably in some ways the most interesting one, is this question of stories. So again, how do we tell all the stories? And very often those stories can be in different formats. Obviously, the the most compellingly engaging format right now is video, whether it's long form or short form. Podcasts are also great, by the way. So it's great we're doing this podcast, lots of podcasts, lots of video, but formats that people want to consume. But we need to collect a lot of these. We have, I think, probably now the team have done a great job, well over a thousand pieces of really great, really compelling evergreen content that tells you things like, you know, when you see that skeleton of Hope the Whale, Our scientists have actually been able to reconstruct Hope's last three years. We know where she was, where she traveled. We know that she was pregnant and gave birth, you know, in the year before she died. And this is stuff we've been able to reconstruct from the science. It's extraordinary stories you can tell about that. We're capturing those stories. We're recording those stories. We're getting them out there. But we've probably got, as I said, well, we have over a thousand stories, as I would call them. I actually think we need at least a hundred thousand stories. And that's a scaling challenge that we can, of course, do to some extent using our own resources. But it's also a scaling challenge that we're going to want to get other people to help us with. So we're going to want to become as museums, if we really want to be good at this, not just the stories that our own teams and our own curators can tell, but actually given that we have the audiences, we have the reach, we have the trust, 
actually helping others who can come in and tell analogous stories. I think we can become an incredibly powerful communication medium. And if you get that right, and then you overlay personalization on this so that individuals, individual audience members, wherever they are, whatever language they speak, whichever country they live in, can follow the thing that really excites them. That's how you really drive engagement. And then the that pinnacle experience is, you know what, after all of that, I so want to come and visit this museum. And when I visit the museum, I'm coming because I want to see this collection, this object, this, and that will just compound it. And that's what creates these memorable experiences. And that's ultimately what's what inspires people in the way that only museums can. So it's knowing your customer, knowing your what's in your store, as it were, and being able to tell great stories. What is fascinating is that you told me earlier before we started recording that your digital team at the Natural History Museum is set up very much like an Amazon product team. Now, I'm saying that in a very complimentary way. I think that's a terrific thing. <laughs> uh, so tell us a bit about that and, and how that came about and, and what that actually means in practice. So we are very fortunate. We have a fantastic digital team, uh, but they're very much organized exactly as the way and way in which any leading tech company would organize their teams, which is you, you organize them around products. And a product in sort of tech terms, if you like, is what is a product or service that can, that can support customers? And the nature of these products is, so a good example is we have a product called Discover. And Discover is exactly designed to give you that window into the stories about the collection. So what you build it on is a layer of really core data. So there's hard yards of digitizing the collection, doing this, recording this evergreen stuff. But then on top of that, the product is how do I take that extraordinarily vast collection of objects and that vast number of stories I've got, and how do I connect with Ed at this moment when Ed arrives interested in this topic, the right stories, the right objects. And that's what a great product can do. And the nature of a great product team is it starts with a visitor requirement. It starts with a, if you like, a customer need, an opportunity. It works backwards from that to say, how do we tailor it and construct it? And it then develops what in the good old days we used to call software, but it develops software in a really swift, agile way. It develops in a way in which it's not just we spend three years and something pops out at the other end. It develops in such a way that we get a minimum, used to call it viable, I like the term minimum lovable product because we should never launch anything that customers aren't going to love, but the absolute minimum you can get until you get it out there. And then you listen and you observe and you see how your visitors interact with it. And then you iterate and you optimize and you make it better and better. And you do this really quickly. So the team are incredibly, if you like, customer focused. They're incredibly good at moving swiftly and moving in an agile way. And this is happening right here, right now. Right here, right now. Because this is what you've talked about, uh, uh, again, about in the Amazon analogy, the kind of restless experimentation. Totally. Experimentation might be the wrong word. The restless kind of product development, getting constant feedback from the customer. Actually, experimentation is exactly the right word because, you know, I've been playing around with, for want of a better word, digital for 25 plus years. And I've only really learned two things over that time, one of which is, even quite small incremental changes can make an enormous difference. You know, the word you use, the color, the size of the button, exactly what you communicate, how you choose which image to put in front of things can make a massive difference to the response. That's one thing I've learned. The other thing I've learned very painfully is that until you try it, you just have no idea. And you might think you're the best expert in the world, but actually until you put a product in front of a customer and so many customers and so many complexities. Until you try it, you just don't know. So the right approach is to think of yourself as being continuously experimenting. We think we can write great content, but let's try it. 
and let's measure it and let's run lots of parallel experiments. Let's see what works. And that's what we then double down on. So that's just a very different philosophy from, if you like, we know best. It's, we've got a pretty good idea. People might be interested in this subject, but let's stick it out there. Let's see how they respond and then let's move fast and optimize. And that's, that's the way in which the team here, and I inherited these teams under you know, some of my great colleagues here. They've, they've been configured that way for a couple of years and it really works. And that's why we're able to generate really compelling content really quickly. I, I genuinely, I think that is marvelous. I mean, the other thing you touched on earlier, so we talked about the kind of restless experimentation with the, with the customer, the visitor to the museum and the kind of products that they will want. You also touched briefly on kind of machine learning uh, in terms of the collection. And again, when we were talking before we started recording, you talked to me about how you could potentially have a sort of machine learning application which enables you to, and I, it felt to me a lot like a sort of health analogy, in, enable you to scan, you know, for the sake of argument, 5,000 fossils and date them accurately when yesterday you would have had to get an expert in to look at each one, make an educated guess and so on. So tell me how that kind of technology is being applied to the collection. Yeah, so this is a, so it's, a, it's a wonderful question. And again, it, it touches on something that uh, I think people know as well as a visitor attraction. People are perhaps less familiar with the fact that the museum here is quite a serious scientific research institute. We have over 300 full-time academics, and they are researching deep questions about biodiversity and the future of minerals. Uh, but one challenge you always get with these collections is um, if you want to understand things, you need to be able to date things to understand evolution. And so very often we will find, for example, in the fossil collection, a wonderful fossil that's been dug up and there'll be a large thing. But these things were collected over the last couple of hundred years and we have huge numbers of them, but they're often not dated. And you really need to know how old is it to be able to learn things about the evolution. Now, the technique for dating or one of the techniques for dating is you have a look at what we call microfossils. So these are tiny, tiny, tiny little fragments of old sea creatures or mollusks or whatever that survive very well. And if you study them very, very carefully, an expert can begin by understanding the type of microfossils to say, yes, that's the Jurassic era. It's 130 million years old and that one's 170 million years old. So you can do this. But as you can imagine, it's incredibly time consuming. It requires deep levels of human expertise who've been trained for years. And then they just have to work through hundreds of thousands of fossil specimens. So they've only done a small fraction. So we have this vast number of fossil specimens that we haven't dated. But here's where machine learning comes in. Because what you can do instead, and this is a fairly sort of, you know, almost 101 type machine learning application, is you take the images of each of these fossils, which we can capture very quickly. You get your experts to give you, if you like, what we call a training data set. In other words, they'll take a subset of these that they have gone through and manually dated and said, okay, that was 110 million years, that's 200 million years, that's 300 million years. And then that trains a machine learning program. And it's never perfect, but these things are pretty good. And then you just take every image, you run the whole lot through and bingo, you've suddenly very, very quickly got a target candidate date for every single fossil. And if you want to go back and revalidate, you can do that. And that's just one simple example of how you can massively expand this. I can give you another example, which is we have um, some really, really interesting collections around where we have an awful lot, as in tens of millions in some cases, of samples taken of sea creatures or bugs or insects from through the years. And that's actually a window back in time. And actually, we know very often where these things were collected, when they were collected. So we can actually correlate that with data about environmental conditions and ocean acidification, all of this. So you can start to build the models that will tell you how life in the past 
has responded to changes in environmental conditions, whether that's temperature or acidity or whatever. And if you know that, you can start to build the best possible models to predict how life might respond to changes we're seeing right now. And if you know that, you've got a fighting chance of actually coming up with solutions to how we protect biodiversity. So there's some incredible science you can do around this. If you have, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about this, if you have access to uh, brilliant data scientists and brilliant machine learning experts. And you can go off in all sorts of directions here because, of course, people forget that museums are these incredible research institutes. So the kind of technology you might pioneer in terms of dating your fossils and dating uh, organic material can be used in all sorts. It could be used in health applications. It could be used in all sorts of things. I suppose what I'm trying to ask is how much do you think in terms of the technology you're beginning to use We've talked about the customer. We've talked about how you might analyze your collection. How much of it is, frankly, off the shelf and how much of it do you think should be bespoke? It's a really good question. I mean, I think I would say in general, it's sort of if I can hedge, it's kind of configurable. So in terms of if we wanted to, for example, be able to run those kind of image analysis techniques, the sort of machine learning algorithms we talked about, these are available off the shelf. You know, that's a pretty standard application that you could call down from any of the cloud providers. You know, my old shop or various other ones out there would provide you with the hosting and the algorithms, etc. What you do need is a little bit of, you know, art in terms of somebody who can come in and just says, okay, I know how to use that configuration. And I've got a reasonable sort of hypothesis as to which models are best. So you need a little bit of expertise. But the vast majority of these uh, actual techniques and algorithms are now pretty much available as sort of off-the-shelf services. You can just go into and pay as you go. And it's exactly, as you said, it's exactly the same technology that we're now starting to see deployed in healthcare. And we've seen deployed for many years in what you might argue are slightly more mundane activities like shopping and dating and all of these other things. We're We're very familiar to seeing these kind of algorithms. But actually seeing those things deployed to natural sciences or the creative arts or the study of art history or to healthcare, I think that's where the really exciting opportunities lie. So I guess what I'm trying to get to is, as we wrap up, I should also say, by the way, that um, if you've been hearing the odd noises off during this podcast, it encapsulates many different things. One is we've had to move to a corridor because the director's heating system is so ancient. In the <laughs> office, it was impossible to record in the office, which is a, a kind of metaphor for the state of all of our museums, if you like. But anyway... I digress. What I wanted to get to was, you know, where we sort of start out, which is the digital museum. Uh, and again, my sort of gripe is not aimed at you or indeed any of your amazing colleagues in the National Museums is that, and it applies, I think, to a lot of different organisations, digital as an add-on, which is that you say, here we are as a physical institution, we've got to be digital, so we'll have a great website. What I suppose I'd love you to do is to try and encapsulate your vision of a digital museum because you can't be digital first because you've been here for 150 years, but you are clearly going much, much further than just simply having a nice website. Oh, we've also got a thunderstorm during this podcast as well. <laughs> All the brilliant uh, number of obstacles we have to overcome. Yet again, emphasizing the physical world will still always exactly. have a final well, say. Articulating all the reasons why it's so much better to do these things digitally on Zoom rather than doing like this. But so, so I, would, I would describe it like this. The real opportunity is to say, how do we engage a visitor with the extraordinary content we have? Yes. And if you think about that engagement, that engagement will involve 
from time to time, but let's be realistic, it might be once every two years or once a month, an extraordinarily inspirational visit to this physical location. That is the pinnacle experience. Mm. But that pinnacle experience should be underpinned by a continuous, always-on dialogue. Success for me is when every single one of our visitors is talking to us, asking us questions, not getting scared by thunderstorms going on outside, but talking to us perhaps every day or every week. And then off the back of that, that's where we really engage with these stories. And then there are these pinnacle moments when that engagement translates into, yep, I want to come in and see it for real. Get that right. It's not about digital first or physical first. This is about doing both, getting them working together beautifully and creating something that every visitor will love. So I want to just uh, now kind of wrapping up, if you like, because uh, it feels like sort of Royal Navy is about to invade the, the public policy opportunity here. So for me, if we could get this right, if we could clone Doug, as it were, and I'm sure lots of other national museums are doing similar things, but if we could make the whole greater than the sum of the parts, as it were, there is a, surely a massive opportunity here for the UK in really leaning in to what it means to be digital. I mean, you've mentioned, for example, the Louvre has digitized almost half a million of its objects. And clearly in the US, I imagine organizations like the Smithsonian and the Getty are well down uh, this kind of path. But if there was a way of the government coming in and saying, we could put some money behind this, which is not only gonna obviously help improve access to our museums, which is a social good, but frankly, potentially create products that could be sold around the world. Is that a vision that you think is realistic? I, I absolutely do. And if you ask me why, it comes back to this extraordinary point that actually museums and galleries are one of those areas in which Britain genuinely leads the world. In the following sense, if you look at the 10 most visited museums and galleries on the planet, physically visited, four of them are in the UK. That's extraordinary. Yeah. That's more than the whole of continental Europe. It's more than the US. It's more than China. Four out of the 10 most visited museums and galleries are here in the UK. And if we get our act together, and there's always what we used to call a coordination tax, working together is always painful. But actually, if you took those assets we have, if you took some of the skills that Britain has in technology, and we have world-class universities in the sector and world-class researchers, you've got all the ingredients to absolutely lead the world. Well, Doug, thank you so much for spending time with me in this sort of hilarious, in one sense, hilarious podcast as we navigated various <laughs> different obstacles. But for me, absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, you're a very modest man and I don't want to go over the top, but I, uh, certainly as culture minister, and even now have been yearning for the opportunity for museums to kind of seize digital and put it at its heart. So I hope this is the beginning of a great journey as I say, I picked on you, Doug, because obviously I know you well. And the Amazon link was very obvious, but there are no doubt other museum directors around the country and the world doing similar things. But I do think this is a fantastic opportunity. And I think that all my listeners will find this absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Ed, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.